What a great uh, time of worship we've had this morning. It's just wonderful to hear y'all sing. And uh, it just does my soul well, especially when the songs are so rich and they're so theological and they're so sound. I almost feel like I'm not sure what I can add (laughs) to such glorious truths that we've been singing this morning together. What I do want to add is what God has put in His Word for us this morning. I'm so blessed to be able to study the Word of God and then to just uh, make an attempt to open it up to you so that your life is fortified and your faith is strengthened and you leave here each and every Sunday having been nourished from the truth of the Word of God because man does not live by bread alone but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And this word says some very important things for the preacher. It says things like this, we proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom that we may present every man complete in Christ. And so I'm here this morning to proclaim Christ to you. The music's done it, the reading has done it, and now the message will do it. I'm also here like Paul was before the Corinthians when he said, I was with you in fear and in much trembling. And he said, I knew nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified. And that's who I want to proclaim to you this morning. I want to boast today in the cross of Jesus Christ as our only hope. The government is not going to save us. The arm of flesh is not going to save us. The storm shelter is not going to save us. FEMA is not going to save us. We got to put our hope in the only place that it can rest, and that is the crucifixion of Jesus Christ and Him resurrected from the dead. I want to give you four clues this morning to who we're going to talk about. Four words that I want you to remember today, that I want you to leave with today. I'm going to say them often throughout the message. I'm also going to say the text often throughout the message. So many times that I hope you get sick of hearing it. And I hope that you leave here having it memorized. So here's the text and here are the four words. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. Mark 10, 45. It's also Matthew twenty twenty eight. So you just memorized two verses at once. So there you go. Here are the four words. Shocking. Sacrificial. Sufficient. Substitute. Who am I talking about? The Lord Jesus Christ. A shocking, sacrificial, sufficient substitute for you and me. Join me in Mark ten forty five in your Bibles. Mark 10, verse 45, if you've been with us in our church, you are thinking we've been here before, and you would be correct. This is our third pass over this verse. The first pass was about two months ago, and our text then was chapter 10, verse 17, all the way to the end of the chapter. And I think I called it something like the comprehensive Christian life. And we looked at this in a bird's eye view, this major section of Mark in chapter 10, and we may have barely touched on verse 45. We then came along maybe a month later, sometime in April, and I did a message on Mark 10, 41 to 45, and I called it true greatness. And so in those two messages, we really looked at the context of Mark 10, 45, which by the way is the theme verse of the book of Mark. It is the most important verse of Mark's gospel. It encapsulates all that Jesus was about and why he came. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life, a ransom for many, captures Mark's 
theme. We've looked at it in its context. As Jesus was the pinnacle of servanthood, Jesus was the primary example of his own message. He, he, was, the, he was the illustration of his own sermon, you see. And we looked at all of that, and we looked at what true greatness looks like. It looks like servanthood, and it looks like giving your life away, and we find all of that perfectly and profoundly in Christ. But today we want to make a third pass at this because we want to just hone in on this one verse by itself. We want to seek to plumb the depths of verse 45 of Mark 10. We want to enter into the reality of the shocking, sacrificial, sufficient substitute. To do this, I've, I've cast out four questions for us to consider. They're in your bulletin as the outline. We're going to consider the ransom price this morning for our redemption. We're going to consider who paid it. And in that sense, it was shocking. We're going to consider how was it paid. It was a sacrifice. It was sacrificial. We're going to consider what was paid. And here we will understand that it was sufficient. And finally, for whom was it paid? And there we will see that it was a substitutionary atonement. So, first of all, who paid it? Look at verse 45 of Mark 10. For even the Son of Man. This could also be translated for the Son of Man Himself. Brian, you stole my thunder. But we're going to go back there anyway. Daniel chapter 7. Will you go with me to Daniel chapter 7? Because we have got to look at this passage closely to see who paid it, who paid this ransom price for us. And Brian has read for us verses 13 and 14. I want to look at those with you for a moment. Because this is surely what Jesus had on his mind in Mark when he said, the Son of Man. It's a, it's a title with a dual emphasis. One is the emphasis of humility, that here is a person who is of man. He is humble. He is human. He is like us. He is beset with weaknesses and frailties of humanity. He, he had to sleep, and he had to eat, and he could bleed, and he could be tired. He was a, a human being in full capacity, in full measure. And that's always present when you hear the title, Son of Man. Ezekiel used it often. And I think that was often his emphasis there. But there's another side to that title. There's an exalted side, a powerful side, a sovereign and glorious side. And it, and it is drawn right out of Daniel chapter 7. And this vision that Daniel had of the very throne of God, God the Father here depicted as the Ancient of Days, with holy justice and wrath flowing from His throne in heaven. And then there is this person presented to the Ancient of Days. This is not speaking of the return of Christ to the earth. This is speaking of the Son of Man being presented in this royal court to the Ancient of Days to be given something. So let's look at that in Daniel 7. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a Son of Man was coming. Not to earth, but he came up to the Ancient of Days. He came to the unapproachable one. He came to the Holy of Holy Ones. He came to the one who dwells in inapproachable light. Whose, whose hair was like pure wool. Whose throne was ablaze with flames. He is the only one with the audacity, if you will, 
to approach this Ancient of Days. The only one who can measure up to the standard of righteousness and holiness and not be turned away. The only one who doesn't have to cover his face like the holy angels is the Son of Man. And he came up. What boldness this is to come up to the very presence of God himself. And he was presented before him. And, and you get this picture of something that is royal and regal and, and, and ceremonial. And it's glorious to behold. And there's onlookers with the holy angels and the seraphim. And to him who? To the Son of Man. Was given from the Ancient of Days dominion or sovereignty, glory and a kingdom. And you've had to have been going through the book of Daniel to appreciate this. Because kingdoms come and kingdoms go. And kingdoms come and kingdoms go. And no matter how great they are on this earth. No matter how rich they are and how powerful they are. And how many other nations they can subdue. They all eventually crumble from within. They all disintegrate. They all self-destruct. Until this kingdom comes. This kingdom given to the Son of Man. That all the people's. Not just Nebuchadnezzar's people, not just Alexander the Great's people, but all the peoples, all the nations, men of every language might serve him. Unlike all earthly dominions, his dominion is an everlasting sovereignty which will not pass away. This statue won't crumble. This one won't fall. His kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. He'll usher in this kingdom at his second coming. It'll last in one phase for a thousand years on this earth. And then it will go on eternally with the Son of Man reigning and ruling. That's what Jesus has in mind when he says in Mark ten forty five, For even the Son of Man... Do you understand who paid this ransom price is the question. And how shocking it truly is. This is like a royal king giving his life in exchange for a smelly beggar. This is like an honest judge giving his life in exchange for the guilty criminal. This is a righteous Messiah giving himself for a mess of humanity. Son of man is a title of Messiah, anointed one, glorious one, reigning one. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life, his very soul, a ransom payment for many. This is shocking. This is startling. This is disturbing on many, many levels. So first of all, we want to think about who paid this price. We want to be reminded this morning of His glory, of His worth, of what He deserved, instead what He got, what we deserve, and instead what we get. Let it sink in. Not just another human being died to pay your penalty, but the royal king of kings. Stepped out of heaven's praises and stepped down, down, down the throne steps to the earth to redeem an unrighteous mess called you and me. I want us to marvel this morning then. That's our application as we begin is to just simply marvel that it was even 
the Son of Man who did this for us. The second question we consider is how was it paid? How was the ransom price paid? And our word is sacrificial. Look at the text again. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served. Why would he say that? What is the implication of that statement? The implication was he had every right to come and be served. They should have rolled out the red carpet. He should have been placed on a throne. He should have been adored by all nations. He should have been obeyed. He should have been worshipped. They should have sang praises to him. They should have wrote songs for him. He should have never had to lift a finger. Every meal and every step he should have been carried by willing and joyful servants. God had visited earth. The Word, the eternal Word who was face to face with God has become flesh and dwelt among us. If anyone should have ever been served, it should have been the Son of Man. That is the implication of that statement. And He did not come for that purpose. Was He served? Yes, He was. He had needs. The women ministered to Him. Angels served Him in the desert. He was served, but that's not why He came. That wasn't the purpose. That wasn't His goal. That wasn't His point. That was just a reminder that He was human and He had needs as a human But the very one who should have been served did not come to be served. He did not come to be waited on. He did not come to have his feet washed. There's no record in the Gospels of his feet being washed. But he washed feet. He he taught tirelessly. He healed to the wee hours of the night. The Son of Man came to serve, came to deacon. He came to be a deacon, to be a minister. This is so basic, isn't it? His life really wasn't complex. It was so simple and so focused and so total. He did not come for people to serve him, but for him to serve people. To labor on our behalf. He came to roll up his sleeves and go to work. He didn't come to be watched. He didn't come to be fawned over. He came to sweat. He came to get after it. And get after it. And get after it. And then to give his life away. Tomorrow is a Memorial Day. It's the day when we recognize that there have been some in our history who not only served us, but gave their life in that service. I love the Marine commercials. Uh, anytime they come on, I just perk up. Great branding there by the, the, the advertisers for the Marines. And there's been one a while back. I just love this. They, they, they showed the, the scenes and the training and so forth. And then at the end, they said, we don't take applicants We take commitments. And they make a commitment, don't they? Men and women in the armed forces, they make a commitment to serve us. They do not come to be served, but to serve. To go into hard places and do hard things on our behalf. And and then out of that number, a minority of them, thankfully, a, a small portion of them will do the very thing that's in this text to a degree. They will not only come to serve, but they will come to give their life. That is the ultimate expression of servitude. That is the pinnacle of of, of laboring for someone is to actually die for them. There's a country song out that says uh, this saying, all gave some and some gave all. 
And so tomorrow we will remember that and we'll recognize that and we should. And we will be thankful for those in our history who have secured our freedoms with the price of their own life. Jesus, of course, does this in a unique way, which we'll get to in a moment. But I just want you to see that the way he paid the ransom price was by way of sacrificial service on our behalf. A service that led to the laying down of his very life, voluntarily and willingly. No one took his life from him, but he joyfully laid it down on our behalf. The word life there in Greek is suke, it's soul, speaks of the entirety of the person, everything that they are and everything that they have. He came for the very purpose. This is the design of his incarnation. This is why he was born. This is why he lived, so that he could die. He came to die. He came to give his life, to give his soul a ransom for many. The application here, not only should we marvel at who did this, but we should be reminded this morning that this must be received, not achieved. So many people get in their mindset that the way they're going to be ser- saved is that they're going to serve God. And, and that's how they're going to achieve salvation. And if I serve God enough, and if I give God enough, I give Him enough tithes and enough of my time and enough of my energy, and if I work hard enough for God, then maybe God will let me into heaven. That's achieving salvation, not receiving salvation. This text would teach us that there is someone who has served us, and there is someone who has worked for us, and we cannot add to that work. On our behalf. We can only receive it. We cannot enhance it. We cannot achieve it. We cannot add to it. You know there are really two translations of Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Which one is your translation? Which one do you like? There's one from the Holy Bible that goes like this. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not as a result of works, so that no man may boast. That's the Holy Bible translation of Ephesians 2, 8, 9. But do you know there's another translation? I call it the proud religionist translation. And it goes like this. For by self-righteousness you seek to be saved through law-keeping and morality and that of yourself, so that it is God's payment as a result of your works, so that you can and should boast. Which one is your translation? Are you a receiver this morning or an achiever? Are you a quitter or a doer? Have you quit of your works to try to earn your way into heaven? Or have you continued to get on that treadmill? Even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. Will you be served this morning is the question. Will you be worked for? Will you lay it all down, all of your pride, all of your effort, all of your self-righteousness, all of your morality and your law keeping will you lay it all down and put it on a big pile and call it a big pile of dung and say I will simply receive what the son of man did for me this is the heart of conversion the heart of salvation where we quit and we rest in what he's done if you can't receive you can't be saved If you can't receive, you can't be saved. God saves quitters. That's right. God saves losers. God saves the broken. God saves those who can't save themselves. 
That's salvation wrought by the Son of Man. That's why Paul says, I came to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So this uh, Jesus Christ is a shocking payment for our ransom. It is a sacrificial payment. He gave of his time and energy and sweat and blood and he went hungry and he went sleepless and he didn't have a house and he lived in poverty. His very life is a rebuke to the pursuit of material things. He came on a mission to give his life away. It was never a surprise. It was always the plan. It was always orchestrated by the hand of the Father. That brings us to the third question, what was paid? This really gets us to the very heart of this verse and to the heart of the gospel. It's one word here, ransom. Oh, what a word this is. This is the word that takes us to our word sufficient this morning. Shocking, sacrificial, and sufficient. The word ransom here means a price that is paid to redeem or buy back something or someone. And that person, if it's a someone, is usually a slave. That's how this word is used in the Bible. It's actually a family of words. The root word of the word ransom here, it's used nine times in the New Testament, 13 times in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the New Testament. I looked at all of those uses There's a great example, an illustration of it in Exodus 21. Over in Exodus 21, if you had an ox and he went out and and gored your neighbor to death, then you had two choices. You could either pay that family back with your own life or you paid them the sum of money that they set and that sum of money was called a ransom. And it wasn't a ransom for the person who was killed. It was a ransom for you. It was the payment that you would give in exchange for your life if you wanted to keep living. And that family said, you've killed, your ox killed our family member. Here is the price you must pay to live. And you would pay it. It's in Exodus 21. That is the idea, that is the root concept here. It is an exchange of life for life, money for life, or life for life. A payment for a slave to buy something back. And what you learn when you look at all of the uses in the New Testament and all of the uses in the Septuagint is that this price is very, very costly indeed. In fact, it is the very nature of the cost of the price that makes it sufficient, you see. Let me show you some verses. Let's look at a few of these together. Psalm 49. Because until we see the value of the price paid, we will not understand the sufficiency of the atonement accomplished. So, Psalm 49 gets us started. In verse 7. And we find our words here many times over. On the other side of of Jesus, before the incarnation, before the full revelation of the gospel, here's what it looked like. Verse 7 of Psalm 49. No man can by any means redeem his brother 
or give to God a ransom for him. For the redemption of his soul or life is costly, and he should cease trying forever, that he should live on eternally, that he should not undergo decay. On the other side of the cross, on the other side of the gospel, this is what it looked like. We can't keep people from dying. We can't give God a large enough sum of money. I can't redeem my Jewish brother from death. It's too costly. I might as well give up. It's impossible. It's impossible, he's saying, that any of us should live on eternally in this flesh and we would not undergo the rod of the grave. And so there's just a cry of the human heart there that death lays over all of humanity and we want to stop it and we can and it's, and it's forever taking people from us and, and yet there's nothing we can do to stop it because it would require a sum of money to be given to God that is beyond anything we could fathom. The redemption of a man's soul is costly indeed. When we come over to the New Testament now on the other side, we get the full revelation of this. Turn to Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2. In verse 13, Paul says, We're looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. So there's a verse that just clearly calls Jesus God in the Bible. He is our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. Verse 14, who gave himself? Who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds? So the sufficient price that was paid was Christ himself, Christ's life, Christ's blood. Christ had to die. Christ had to give everything and to give all. And anything short of that would not have redeemed one person because the cost is very high. He gave himself. 1 Peter chapter 1 takes us into this uh, a little deeper in verse 18. Peter says, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold. See, the Jewish mindset, they had an an idea of you could redeem land and you could redeem animals. And and there were certain even crimes you could redeem yourself for with silver and gold. That was in their economy, so to speak. Restitution was big under the law. He said, but the restitution for us was not silver or gold. From your feudal way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious or valuable, or costly blood, as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. In Hebrews 9, our last passage on this, Hebrews chapter 9, and I like this one, it just kind of sums up the whole picture. We're thinking about something that was shocking and sacrificial and sufficient. Hebrews 9 passage captures all of this, beginning in verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. He entered the holy place once for all, that would be time-wise, once for all time, having obtained eternal 
redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and ashes of a heifer sprinkling, those who have been defiled, sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? How many sins have been committed? How many sins have been committed by just the people in this room? How many sins of omission and sins of commission and sins of thought and sins of words and sins of actions have we committed? And how holy and just is God to to infinitely punish every single one of those sins. You see, that's the reality. Every sin that's ever committed will be punished forever in eternal hell or they will be punished on Jesus Christ. No sin will go unpunished because God is too just and God is too holy to ever set aside His righteousness for the sake of His love. So now consider that the death of Jesus Christ because of the value of the person who died was in fact sufficient to cover all of the sins of all people for all time and have some left over. His death then was of infinite value on our behalf. Infinite value. We've all seen those riveting kidnapping movies. It always goes like this. There's some, some kid of a, of a rich guy. And, and the kid's got the look, you know. And he's, he's, he's always a pro, uh, kind of a prodigy kind of kid too. And so you get to know the child a little bit at the beginning of the movie, and he's 10, 11, 12 years old, and you become very fond of him, and then, and he's the son of this very, very wealthy person, and then he's kidnapped, and you, you know the story, and then they hold him for what? For ransom. And they say, I want a million dollars dropped off in this bag at this particular spot in, in unmarked bills, right? And, and if you don't do it, he's going to lose his life. Origen actually taught this model of the atonement. Origen was an early church father about the third century. He taught a model of the atonement that we have been kidnapped by Satan. And that Jesus is paying the ransom price to Satan for us. Oh, it made for great drama. (laughs) Very interesting theory of the cross of Christ that we're held captive by the enemy and, and he's holding us and he wants the ransom and the ransom is the death of God's son because he hates Jesus so much. The only problem with Origen's theory of the atonement was it was not in the Bible. Nothing in the Bible suggests that this payment, this ransom, this price for the redemption of people was paid to the devil. No, beloved, God set the price. God is the one who told Adam and Eve, if you eat of it, you will surely die. God is the one who says the wages of sin is death. God set the penalty, God set the price, and then God, in shocking amazement, pays His own price. Even the Son of Man, you see. Satan was not paid at the cross. Satan was crushed at the cross. God set the price, and the price was paid to the Father. It was the Lord who crushed Him. It was the Lord who demanded the life of Jesus for Many. We need to marvel at the shocking person who paid this price. We need to receive it and not achieve it. And then thirdly, we need to live for the one who died for us. 
This is what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5. One died for us, therefore we should live for him. Nothing is more simple, more plain about the Christian life than we live for Jesus. How do I live each day? I'm to live it for the Lord, not for myself. That's the decision you've made when you became a Christian. You just reenact that every day of your life. We are to live for the one who gave all for us. We cannot even fathom the worth of the God-man. We cannot even fathom that he would be the very ransom price for sinners like us. Let's come to the last question then. For whom was it paid? For whom was it paid? Look at the text with me. It's two words. For many. That word for is so important. It's not the normal word in Greek for for. It's a word anti. It's used very few times in the New Testament. It means instead of or in the place of. And so this literally reads that he is, his life, his life is the ransom. His life is the payment instead of the life of many. This is as clear a text on the substitutionary atonement of Christ as there is in the Bible. There was something given in exchange for our lives. It was his life. He echoes here, of course, Isaiah 53, 11, and 12, which I read earlier this morning, where Isaiah speaks of his uh, atoning for the sins and transgressions of, same language, many. In fact, this whole text echoes Isaiah 53 because Christ is the suffering, what? Servant who came not to be served, but to serve. And so Christ certainly, as he said this, is thinking of Isaiah 53. Now, look at many here. This is many not in contrast to all or contrast to few. That's not the point of this text. This is not a text about limited atonement or unlimited atonement. It's not addressing that. This is in contrast to the one. What Jesus is wanting us to see here is that there is one life in ransom for an innumerable Many. This then speaks of the infinite value of the suffering and death of Christ. That one man's blood could cover the so many sins of so many people because we can't even number the number of the redeemed. Surely it's into the millions. How many his one life, his one death covered and purchased for God. I have two well uh, good functioning kidneys. If a family member of mine needed a kidney, and mine was a match, and it's what they needed to stay alive, I would give my one kidney to the one person, and then guess what? I'm tapped out. <laughs> no more kidneys to give away. No more people I could save. One for one. If I'm a lifeguard at the ocean, and ten people start drowning at the same time, I'm one person who can go save one drowning person. One for one. Fireman going into the burning building. And adults are in there and they can't get out. He can carry out one person. The contrast here is one person for an innumerable multitude. Men, women, rich, poor, Jew, Gentile, every nation, every language, every tongue, every culture, every time. People from all over... World history find in Jesus Christ a substitute for their penalty of God's wrath. 
The application is obvious. There's room at the cross for you. There's room at the cross for you. That's the application here because the one was so valuable, so sufficient, so gloriously rich in his own person that one drop of his blood, one moment of death is sufficient to pay for the sins of all people of all time. And so we can say to every sinner, there's room at the cross for you. There's room at the cross for you and all your sins. Bring them all to the foot of the cross. No sin can rise above the value of the atoning death of Christ. He gave His life a ransom for many. And that life was of infinite value. And even if you have a million sins, His death will cover them all. Where sin abounded, grace abounded all the more. One died for many, one died in our stead, he died in our place, he took our portion, he took our punishment. And so the call for us this morning is to come to the foot of the cross empty-handed, to come broken, to come humble, to come with a mindset of I am not willing and I am not able to add anything to what Jesus Christ has done for me. I refuse, I refuse to add to his substitutionary death. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. Bow your heads with me as we prepare to take the elements this morning. Father, this is indeed shocking. This is sacrifice beyond anything we can imagine or fathom. This is a sufficiency that goes beyond the deepest, darkest stain of sin in this place at this moment. Or that of any other sinner for that matter. And this is our substitute that we celebrate this morning. That we remember this morning with the elements of bread and juice. Lord we own the fact that uh, we were the sheep that went astray. That we were the ones who should have been punished. We own the fact that it should have been us on the cross that he died in our place. Help us to meditate deeply on that fact just now. Help us to never ever get used to who did it, how he did it, what he did, and for whom he did it for. Thank you for this time. I just invite you now just to keep your heads bowed with the men who are going to serve us to come forward. Just spend a few moments now in uh, meditation and Confession of sin, examination of your heart. We practice an open communion table. You don't have to be a member of our church to uh, participate. We simply ask that you have uh, repented of your sins and trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And with all of us here this morning, you are ready to partake in a worthy manner, meaning you've examined yourself and confessed your sins and can do this in a way that is uh, with integrity. God is not after uh, our perfection in this life, just our direction. And so your life proves the direction you're going, and the Lord knows the reality of that. Father, thank you for the bread and the juice this morning. Help us to remember you and what you gave up in giving your son. Help us to remember Christ. Meditate deeply on this very text this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.